This is a podcast by One Life Christian Church in Baldwin, New York. We pray that the following podcast would encourage you, build you up in the gospel, and lead you closer to Jesus. We remind you that these are simply tools to help you in your walk and ask that you still look for a local church to attend and serve in. Welcome to the living room. chapter 12, verse 20 to 29. Verse 20 reads, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip... servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken Today, we begin our Easter series here at One Life, and it's called Fulfill. We're taking a look through the Apostle John's perspective of some of Jesus' final days before dying on the cross. And if you look back to John chapter 12, you'll notice that where we started reading is after, right after, Jesus has returned back into Jerusalem. Your Bible might say the triumphant. Why? So that this angel of death 
They lost their kid for three days. They lost their kid for three days. That's a problem, right? And, and he wasn't an adult. He wasn't in ministry yet. We're going to see here the time has come where the son will be glorified. Jesus didn't engage in ministry until he was in his 30s. But when he was found teaching the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees in the temple in Jerusalem, he had been lost for three days. Now, I know Mary was a special woman because she was Jesus' mom, but that's insane. <laughs> but it paints to you the picture of how many people would come to Jerusalem at the time that someone would lose their child and it would take days for them to find them again. And thank God for himself and for keeping his son and making sure that Jesus was where he needed to be about his father's business. And then when Mary finds him, he gets an attitude. Do we, do we realize that? Right? He's like, Ma, I'm busy. I know I wouldn't have been as patient as Mary, but she had an angel come upon her and minister to her, something I have never had. We would have had a different conversation for sure. But he was about his father's business, and we see this continuing here. What an emotion for Jesus and his friends, now fully in ministry, to come back into Jerusalem and where his friends were probably excited about the party, right? I feel We were just in the Dominican Republic last week, and as we're driving to an area where my wife's birthplace is, we were, it's where two major rivers join, and I see that there's stages set up everywhere, and, and I'm like, what's happening? And they explain to me that this coming week is the Dominican Independence Day. And then at the same time as when they do carnival, I've never been to a carnival, but all I see is stages, and I'm out, this is going to be a big old party. They're Dominicans, right? So we know, we know, you know how big the parties are. So I see this, and I'm like, man, what an exciting time, though, and just driving through that area without carnival having started was already difficult. So we can only imagine once they engage fully in this party. And so here Jesus is with his friends. His friends must have been so excited to come into Jerusalem for the party. Like this is where the life of the party is. And we're bringing the Savior with us. Like we're going to be the coolest kids on the block. But we know now that the entire time Jesus already knew what was coming. It was the beginning of the worst week of his natural life. But he had a purpose, and he had a reason to be stepping triumphantly into this area. And that's what we get to see here in this first peek through the eyes of the Apostle John. John, who was the author of this gospel according to John, John was also known as John the Beloved, a man who Jesus encountered as a simple and humble fisherman. John was the only apostle who was known to have died of old age and not martyred like the rest of the apostles. And a quick note there, for those of you who may not know, the apostles of Jesus Christ, those who engaged in his work, died horrible deaths. Each of them engaged in the good work of Jesus Christ, but finding their end horrifically, except for the beloved, the apostle John. And I wonder... Because if you study these stories of the last days of Jesus Christ, you'll, you'll realize that of all of the apostles, of all of the disciples that came in with Jesus to the city for this party time of the Passover, they were on assignment. Jesus was already rolling in his ministry. You'll notice that when it came time, the difficult times of Jesus, the final days of Jesus, the only 
disciple that was left was the, the Apostle John. Everyone else had gone to take care of their own business, but the Apostle John was close to the rabbi. He was close to his master, the Lord. So I wonder if in God's grace and mercy, he allowed John, because John was faithful to stay close to Jesus on those final days, and we'll look at how close in just a little bit, that he also said, hey, I'm going to spare you what the rest of your friends, the disciples and apostles, had experienced. And so he didn't die a tragic death. He died in Ephesus at, uh, at an older age, as an old man. And Jesus loved John dearly, so much that when he was on the cross dying, he looked to John to care for his mother Mary in his absence. Jesus says to Mary, woman, behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. In the Catholic faith, in the Catholic system, this is the verse that they use to teach that Mary was above other women, right? When the truth is that what we see in Scripture is that like any other woman who obeys and receives the call of Jesus Christ to go on assignment and be a vessel, the Catholic Church sees her here as above the rest, right? And there's no levels. There's no comparison. She is another woman who got called on by the Lord and accepted the call to be the mother of Jesus. Was she faithful? Do we celebrate what she did in her life to be faithful and saying yes to carrying the Savior of the world? Absolutely. Praise the Lord for Mary. But here this also shows us the importance that John had to Jesus. And though we also have the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke in Jesus' days, of Jesus' days in ministry, I find that John had a very special access to Jesus. John was the one who received the revelation of Jesus, which we now know as the book of Revelation. And if I can stop here for a quick second, a quick plug. If, um, how many of you were present with us with the reading through the Bible together? We read the book of Revelation. Okay, not that many of us. That's insane. My friends, look around. But here, there's another opportunity. On March 15th, we're going to be gathered here on a Friday night at 7 p.m., and we're going to be reading together through the book of Acts. Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's going to take us about two hours. I'm not going to be preaching. We're not going to be explaining. We're literally just going to gather to read the Word of God together as the Scriptures instruct us. And I invite you to be here with us. What a wonder it would be on a Friday night for us to gather. We can do a hundred other things that are great, but to be gathered together as a church reading through the scriptures. We're going to be reading the book of Acts. Again, that's March 15th at 7 p.m. Please make a note in your calendar and join us here. March 15th at 7 p.m. I lost my place. John, right, how special John was. John, like Isaiah, would get his own vision of God's throne. We know in Isaiah chapter 6, chapter 9, verse 6, where Isaiah has this vision of the throne of grace, John also received this vision hundreds of years later. So yes, there were other special men like John, but it's important to us that Jesus would regard John as the beloved, the beloved John. Today, today's text starts this Easter series for us. The account of Jesus' last days as seen through the eyes of the beloved. And what we're going to do is we're going to just grab, in those final days, Jesus makes some statements and makes some promises that we're going to sit in for the next five weeks. 
verse 20, let's start with today's text. Verse 20, verse 20 sets the tone for where this all is happening. Let's read it here. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They're setting this tone. The triumphant entry has happened. The feast is where they are. And again, I shared with you that they're at Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Verse 23 and 24 says, And Jesus answered them, excuse me, the Greeks have come over, these Gentiles have come over to Philip and Andrew, asking to meet Jesus. We see that in verse 22. And so what is Jesus' response when the disciples come to him, telling them, telling him that there are those who are waiting for him. And we see his response in verse 23 and 24, where he responds with an illustration. And Jesus answered them, verse 23 says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'll admit to you that some of my week this week studying on this, I spent realizing that I have no idea how seeds work. And as I'm reading this text and I'm reading through these wise words of Jesus. I'm like, again, something else Jesus says that simply sounds like a mystery, but I don't know what it means. And so what do I have to do before engaging in just a scriptural study of this? I said, I got to become a farmer for a quick moment and realize how seeds work. Because, you know, when you're small, they give you seeds and you find seeds or Home Depot seeds or you're, you know, you see your mom drying seeds on the windowsill and you're like, well, what, like I don't understand how this works. So I go and I look at seeds and I realize some of these things. This image of a seed that Jesus uses here is used to illustrate the spiritual truth that for there to be glory, there must be suffering. For there to be glory, there must be suffering. Warren Wearsby says this, there can be no glory without suffering, no fruitful life without death, no victory without surrender. You see, a seed that isn't planted is absolutely pointless. When my mom would leave seeds on the windowsill to dry out, the one thing you'll notice is that a seed that hasn't been planted can sit in that little packet or on that napkin forever and do absolutely nothing. The seed must be planted. And before it's planted, it has to die. The drying means that it has died to its former state. So if you like watermelon like I do, because I can eat watermelon all day. Yes. No one in my house likes watermelon. I buy an entire one for myself. <laughs> and one of my dreams is to somehow grow watermelon, and I did it last year, actually. They were terrible, <laughs> but I tried. And one of the things that I learned in that process was that you can't just Otherwise, we would all have watermelon at our house, right? Like, you can't just spit out watermelon seeds and just throw them on the ground. Before they produce fruit, they have to stop being what they used to be, which is an alive seed. It has to die first, be planted, germinate, and become more fruit. Are you seeing what I'm saying? We, my friends, are seeds. But in, before we produce good fruit, we have to dry and die. 
So what is Jesus saying here? Let's read it again. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. What does that mean? A seed, a singular seed that has not been planted will remain alone forever because it cannot produce fruit if it has not been planted. It says, but if it dies, Jesus says, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. The seed that has not died to its former state or to what it used to be will not produce fruit. So what's the invitation then for us as we read this? If I am like a seed, the invitation is for me to die first. And this is not an invitation to take your own life. Please understand this. I shared something before that when we read scriptures like these, and I'm going to reread verse 25 in just a second for you to understand, because the enemy wants to take things like this, and because of the great mysteries of God and the fact that we are limited in many ways to in our flesh understand what Jesus means, right? Have you ever read scripture and you just don't understand? My friends, don't feel beaten down by that. Don't feel like you are worth less because you don't understand everything. Remember, he is the creator of the universe. Jesus himself was present when the world was nothing. When God spoke everything into existence, Jesus was there. Genesis chapter 1 talks about the Elohim, which is the plurality of God. You've heard me say this before. So Jesus was before Moses and Abraham and the forefathers of our faith. He was before, and it, Scripture says he was made manifest, 1 Peter chapter 1. He was made manifest into the flesh. Why? Because he had a job to do, and that's what we celebrate this Easter season, that Jesus had a job to do. Let's keep reading. Verse 25, Jesus continues speaking. He says, whoever, loses his, whoever loves his life, excuse me, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world would keep it for eternal life. So without studying that, you read that and you're like, wait, I'm supposed to hate my life? That doesn't sound like it's glorifying to God. Let's look into it. We should know that this isn't Jesus saying that we should self-sabotage or make life harder for ourselves than necessary. And for those of us who have grown up around religious systems or perhaps in the church or any other faith, you realize that a lot of legalism and a lot of religion will invite people into self-sacrifice that is not necessary. If I whip myself and punish myself enough, then perhaps God will see my effort and realize that I am a good person. Just recently, I had a conversation with someone who I thought I knew a lot about. And in engaging with her and asking her how her walk with the Lord has been, she revealed to me that 13 years ago, when her husband died, she realized how fake the people at her church were. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. That, of course, that's heartbreaking, and a lot of us have very similar stories about the church. But, but what happened? So, you know, I realized that the church wasn't for me. And I knew that God would love me anyway because I'm a good person. I take care of my children, and I've made it through the death of my husband. And I stopped and thought, like, this woman is 40-something years old. You've been in the church your whole life. And still, the long skirt, no earrings, no makeup, long hair, all of that, all of that is still in place. All of the religion is intact. But to come to realize that after 40 years of being a believer in Jesus, that you have no idea who Jesus is. 
Because she said, I realize that if I'm just a good person, God will take care of me. My friends, that is not how this works. You cannot gain favor from Jesus. You either follow him and obey him or you don't. This illustration, this John chapter 12, verses 20 to 29, is a reminder to us of how much it costs us in our flesh to actually walk with Jesus Christ. It is not easy. It is not easy. I remind you again that the apostles died horrific deaths. And if you watch documentaries about the death of Jesus Christ, you'll come to realize that the death that he died was horrific. But surprise, surprise, Jesus wasn't the only one that was crucified. It was actually fairly normal. And if you read in Luke's account, what happens when Jesus is hung on the cross? He has friends. He has one to the right and one to the left, hanging right there next to him. And these two men, these two thieves on the cross, hanging next to Jesus, represented two different types of people. The one who knew that he was a thief, but denied the power of God. And the other one who also knew he was a thief, but trusted that God, in his sacrifice for him, would allow him access into heaven. He says, remember me in paradise. When I consider the thieves on the cross, I wonder if I would have been like the thief who would have recognized Jesus. And what he says to Jesus is wonderful. And I'm paraphrasing, but you look up the story for yourself. He says, we deserve to hang on this cross. You do not. And the other one says, well, if you're able to take yourself off, then why don't you take yourself off? See, Jesus was on assignment, and he had something to do. And regardless of how difficult Jesus' assignment was, he had to be obedient to the Father. And that's an invitation to us, my friends, because what God calls us to is never easy. To walk with him is a call and welcome into suffering. How do you respond to that very same call, friends? Here, Jesus is talking about us and our priorities and where we place our love. In verse 25, he begins first, whoever loves his life loses it. What does that mean? What does it mean to love your life? This means that we love the flesh that we're in, that we find pleasure in dwelling in the filth of our flesh, that we prefer life on earth more than we desire the presence of God. I'm going to say that last line again because I feel like it hits in this room. That we might desire life on this earth and the pleasures of our flesh more than we desire the presence of God. And simply think about it. If there are some sinful spaces in your life that God right now is calling you out of because he is, I don't need to know what sin you're engaged in to know that God is calling you out of it because that's part of our walk. And the very many times that we have made an active decision to remain in our sin because we like the sweetness, the savory state of our sin more than the presence of God. Because the presence of God calls me out of my comfort into discomfort, and I don't have time for that. Lord, you made me a man. You made me a woman. You put me in this flesh. So what we try to do is we try to rationalize our flesh. Well, God doesn't make mistakes. He put me in this body. No, no, no. God doesn't make mistakes. 
sin put you in your situation, not the Father. But instead of taking responsibility for our brokenness and declaring, yes, I have wronged, I have made a mistake, it's easier to rationalize the love of God in a way that makes us feel better about ourselves. But God has said what he said, and he has always been who he has always been. We are the ones that find ourselves in rebellion. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is not because you're a good person or because you've behaved or because you help old ladies cross the street. I know I use that one a lot because I feel like it makes us feel good about ourselves. It's not about that. It's because of the blood of Christ that we who were once far away are being brought near to God because of this hefty price that was paid. To love one's life in the spiritual is to reject the grace of God granted through his son, Jesus. And what does rejecting Jesus lead to, in case you've never asked that question? It leads to death. So if you choose to love this life, then you're also choosing to lose your life. A life that leads only to death. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, Paul again speaking to the Roman church. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. I, I know that's real to us. I'll read that again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. We're focused on what God is calling us to. Then the second part of verse 25, Jesus says, whoever in contrast to that first statement, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does this mean, to hate your life? Again, this doesn't mean that we have to hate our daily lives or that we have to hate the fact that we are living and breathing. I'll share with you that in 2003, more than 50,000 Americans lost their life to suicide. So if you are fully in a heart that is not connected to the Father, and you hear this, and you already are struggling with feelings of hating yourself, you might be able to erroneously find freedom here to despise your life in a way that is dishonoring to God. But this is the exact opposite. He's asking us to regard our lives as less important than us walking in obedience to him. God has granted us life, and we should use our lives to glorify him. To hate life in this world is to choose life in line or choose a life in line with Jesus' commands. As difficult as it might be to walk with Jesus, that we choose to walk with him as opposed to simply engaging in the pleasures of our flesh. This statement that Jesus says to the Greek Gentiles was meant to highlight how difficult it is to our flesh for us to walk a life with Jesus. He doesn't want to sugarcoat this for them, and neither does he want to do it for us today. At one point or another, the walk with Jesus is going to cost us something, if not everything. And what happens when Jesus calls us into something, into an obedience that would cost us everything? What would be our response? I pray that our response would be a response of faithfulness, 
Lord, thank you for considering me for this tremendous work. Thank you for choosing me, knowing the dangers of it. I always struggle with believers who have never experienced oppression or pushback because of their faith. Even if it's something small at work, somebody making fun of you. My boss makes fun of me all the time because I have three Bibles open on my desk. I've learned to deal with it now. And they make fun of me for behaving and not wanting to go out with them and the this and the happy hour or whatever. And these are choices that I make. But I need to walk a life of testimony in front of other people who are around me. I need to make sure that my life and my testimony are something that others can regard as faithful before the Lord. But let me tell you something. It's also super broken. And I've made mistakes. And I struggle as well. Don't forget the image of the seed that Jesus shares here. Everyone who received Christ in their hearts chooses to die to themselves and to be reborn into a new life with Christ. When we die to ourselves and our former self is buried and we're planted to be with Christ and destined to produce good fruit. In verse 26, let's go back to John chapter 12. Verse 26, it says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Bear with me for a second, I'm almost done. What I love about this verse is that it challenges the theology that many of us have heard and believed that says that Jesus always comes to us. Where we are all, wherever we are, that Jesus will find a way to get to us at all times. That he is waiting for us to lead him to us for when we want him, for when we want him close and desire him. But this is not what this verse is saying. Those of you who say to serve me, then follow me. Do as I say. Live how I live. Seek me and find me. You notice that this is contrary to the theology that says that we are the master and he is the servant. Do you know what the word Lord means? It is a synonym for the word master. And if he is the master, then that makes us the servant. But somehow we have created these theologies and spiritual truths for ourselves that teach us that he works for us. That God exists to make sure that his children are always okay. That's not true. Entire portions of your Bible tell you that there is a tremendous cost to following Jesus. And let's fast forward a little bit to what verse 27 says. This is the same Jesus saying this. He says, now is my soul troubled. There's no question mark after that. It's a period, which means it's a statement, which is telling us that Jesus is troubled in his heart. Remember, this is day one in Jerusalem. Jesus dies at the end of the week. Day one, he has to go through anguish for an entire week. And we're not even at the, fi uh, at the Last Supper yet. And it's at the Last Supper where he tells his friends that he's going to be betrayed by the man who's sitting to his side. This entire time, they're partying, they're going crazy, they're drinking, they're eating. And Jesus knows that his end is, he said glorified. Glorified would be the time that he would die and then be raised up again by the Father. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour? So it's a question here, but it also reminds me that Jesus was feeling fear in this moment. He knew what he was going to do. And then we know that on one of the final moments, what does he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He asks God to consider if there is any way that this cup can pass from me. You know how many times he says that in the garden? Three times. If you read the story too fast, you think that it was like, oh, God had a, God had a moment of weakness and asked God to reconsider the plan. Three times in the garden he goes to the Father asking him to reconsider and allow him another way. There was no other way. Our sin had to be paid for with blood because God had said what he, you see, even Jesus in all of his authority could not change what God had established. Why? Because sin leads to one place. Sin leads only to death. And even Jesus couldn't change that. So what did he have to do? Let me pay for everyone. So when he hangs on the cross, he absorbs unto himself all of our sin. All of us, 100% of us in this room, I will absorb your sin, past, present, and future, in order to satisfy the debt of our sin to the Father, so that when he looks upon you, he sees me. Debt paid. I wish I had money to give you money right now and clear one of, one of your worst debts and tell you that's not even a fraction of what Jesus has done for you. Talk about an illustration. That'd be a tremendous illustration. It's not going to happen. I don't have the money. I'll, I'll buy your lunch if you don't have money for lunch today. It'd be my pleasure. No bill. Did, oh, did you hear about the Einstein School of Medicine? That the next four years are going to be debt-free? What a blessing. Or the HBCU last year where all the seniors got their debt wiped out? Friend, I'm, that's nothing compared to what Jesus has done for you. Because all of your financial debt being cleared, my wife just got her, her email about her. She's a teacher, so all of her civil whatever her student loans have been cleared. Zero. We looked at the list. Zero, 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 zero. God is good. Nothing compared to what Jesus has done for her. And in all the error that she has made in her life, before me, after me, whatever. Not after me. Before me, during me. She's stuck with me forever. That in advance, Jesus absorbed all of that and would say, hey, debt has been paid. Those who say they serve God are called to follow. A true disciple of Jesus is a disciple in every single space of their life and in every single moment, not just when we come to church. And that's where I think vestment, clothes plays a role, that we think that because we wear the longest skirt or the longest sleeve shirt that we are sanctified for the day. My friends, no. How are you in your darkest spaces? How are you in your loneliest space of your life? And that shows the health that we have before the Father. 
And we all struggle there. We all struggle in that alone space. What's happening in our minds? I shared this morning that let me give you a little sneak peek into my life. I'm someone that struggles with anger. I've learned about myself that I know how to get angry very easily. And how deep in our blood that runs. Last night, I'm at a party, a family party that I was telling you about. And I'm meeting people, other Bataracos, from my bloodline. I'm looking at them. I'm meeting with them, and I'm realizing, oh, my Lord, some of them are just as bad as me. I'm, I'm hanging out with cousins that have my last name, that have my blood, shared family. I've never met them before. And I'm seeing them speak to one another, and it's all hand gestures just like me. Incredible how deep the, the blood runs. But there's a decision that I made because what I've been taught over my life is that I, too, had a father maybe who struggled with anger and a grandfather who struggled with his things and a great-grandfather that struggled with his things. But I have to make a decision for myself and what comes after me to stop what my blood says and declare unto myself what Jesus asks of me. So though I come from a long line of strong-charactered men, for the good and the bad, I have to make a decision to claim how God made me for his glory. Jesus, in this account that John gives us, when he says that his soul is troubled, he asks the question, Father, save me. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says then, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Yes, he was starting to get nervous. Yes, there was fear stirring up in his heart, but he knew what the plan was, and he could not turn away from the plan. There was a job that needed to be done. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And how would it be glorified? It would be glorified by Jesus' sacrifice. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus shows us that we just read that his heart is troubled. And John sees this. But instead of focusing on what he knew would come at the end of that Easter week, he praised God and glorified God and said, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. When you know your assignment, hardships, no matter how hard and how difficult the season, hardships don't keep you from purpose. This all is a promise from Jesus on that Easter week that if we don't choose him over our own lives, we won't share with him in eternity. But for those who abandon themselves and despise their lives in this world, they will find life. And lastly, I love how God brings a tremendous amount of grace to this challenging invitation to despise our lives. What does Jesus say? In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant, there will my servant be also. He says, if anyone serves me, which we now know is equated to following him, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So again, we've recognized that in our flesh we are filthy, that Jesus invites us to turn away even from our own self to die in order to produce good fruit. But there's a recompense. There is a reward at the end of this. And it says that God 
himself, creator of everything and of the universe, and us even, that he will honor us. The God of the heavens will honor you if you would serve and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. One Life Christian Church is located in Baldwin, New York. To find out more about the church, visit us at www.onelifeli.com.